<clears throat> but, you know, actually, before we get going, one more thing is I just recognize that there's a lot going on in our world right now. Um, stuff going on in France and um, just a reminder that we have a very real enemy and, and those who would love to steal and kill and destroy joy. And we also want to recognize that we have men and women who are fighting around the world to protect us and to protect our freedom to be able to worship openly today. So let me just go ahead and really briefly pray one more time. Um, God, we live in a broken world, in a world where uh, a lot of pain happens. And I cannot begin to imagine the pain that your sons and daughters and other men and women who are created in your image an ocean away are going through right now as they're picking up the pieces of their shattered lives. And while that is a huge one, that there, there are shattered lives all around us. And I'm grateful that we have men and women around the world who have placed their safety on the line in order to protect our safety and to allow us to, to have the freedom to worship you openly. So I pray for your protection over our, our men and women of the armed forces, and we thank you for their sacrifice. I pray, Father, that you would use this seemingly meaningless tragedy in France and other places around this world, things that we may not even be aware of, but the brokenness of this world, you are a God who redeems even that. And so I pray that you would be in the midst of that. And would you give us wisdom to know how we can stand beside our brothers and sisters around the world, stand beside our brothers and sisters that are hurting in this church, in this community, that we would be a light. And if the best thing we can do is pray, then would you prompt us, Holy Spirit, to pray. We thank you, God, that you are bigger than anything that we face. Jesus, in your name, amen. Okay, <clears throat> with that, we are um, slowly walking through Psalm 23, which is a declaration of trust and praise written by David thousands of years ago, and it is a personal declaration. I want to read through it first, and then we're going to go ahead and look at one verse. David writes, The Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. I, ha I lack nothing I will not be in want. He cares for me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores or refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valleys or the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you, my shepherd, are with me. Your rod and your staff they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. One that is just a declaration of trust, a declaration of a shepherd's love, written by perhaps the most famous king in all of history, King David. But for some of us, particularly if we are currently walking through our own dark valleys or facing our own enemies, 
it might fall on deaf ears or it might feel a little bit trite, um, (laughs) a little bit too disconnected from the messiness of life. After all, David was a king, right? How could he possibly identify with the messiness of our lives? He didn't have to worry about how he was going to pay his bills. He had a whole treasury to be able to pull from. He didn't have to worry about cleaning his house or the palace. He had a whole staff to do that. He didn't have to worry about taking care of the kids or dealing with their tantrums. He had his wives and, and, and nannies to take care of that. He didn't have to deal with people who were upset with him. Somebody was mad with him. Well, they kept it to themselves because he was king. And if they didn't keep it to themselves, he could imprison him, right? So all David had to do was sit back in his reclining throne with somebody fanning him, somebody feeding him grapes, and he could strum away on his harp all day, writing songs of love and joy about how God had provided for him. But sorry, David, if your words fall on deaf ears or if, if, if that song you're playing sounds a little bit flat to us. Because my ears are still ringing from the fight that I just had with my spouse or my nerves are a little frazzled because my kids are incessantly bickering. Or or, or my heart is heavy because people that I thought were were my friends have, have, you know, stabbed me in the back or whatever it might be. Or or, or there's just all of these burdens of of bills and to-dos and exhaustion. And at the end of the day, I'm just going, okay, great. I'm glad that you trust your shepherd. I'm exhausted. And I am frazzled. And I just don't know if I can take another step. But I think in reality, David could probably identify with that sentiment a lot more than we might recognize. Because although he was a king, his life was an equal mixture of both mountaintop experiences and dark valley passages. Of both joys and sorrows, heartache and hope. Yeah, he may have slayed a giant. But that only provoked the jealousy of the king at the time. And Saul sought to destroy David because he was jealous of the notoriety that it garnered for him. And so he had to run away from everything he knew and go into hiding, not for a month or a year, but for a decade. And even in the midst of that, he wouldn't raise his hand against the king and take his life because he trusted God more than he trusted his own ability to fix that or his own human wisdom. Yeah, he may have been king, but that did not mean he had an easy, carefree life. It is difficult running a kingdom. I can only imagine. It is hard enough trying to navigate a small community church. When I make a mistake, somebody may not get tickets to go to see Lion King. When he makes a mistake, battles are lost and lives are lost. The pressures of running a kingdom are far greater than the pressures that I face day in and day out. And and David, by the way, is no victim. I mean, he he brought upon himself a lot of these things as well. He wasn't the best father. In the process of leading the kingdom, one of the things that he fell flat on his face in was the way that he shepherded his, his own children to the point where one of them got so frustrated that his father was unavailable to him 
that he literally decided he would depose his dad. His hunger for intimacy turned to resentment, and so he raised an army, declared himself king, and marched on Jerusalem to depose his father and take over the crown. And David chose to leave Jerusalem rather than allowing his family's dysfunction to destroy Jerusalem. And then he had to watch as when his army and his son's army met in battle, his son was killed. And the grief, I'm sure that he probably felt that much of this was upon him. And he began to second guess himself. I cannot imagine that heartache. Or the heartache when he is faced with his infidelity, taking a wife that was not his, and destroying the life of one of his friends, one of his mighty men, to try to cover up his tracks. And when God used the prophet Nathan to call him out, you can read Psalm 51 to see the depth of David's cry. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. So no, David didn't have an easy carefree life. He couldn't just sit back and from this lofty perch up in his nice mountaintop go, oh, my God is good. He takes care of me. You look at the Psalms and they are equal parts cry of joy and praise and cry of agony and sorrow and discouragement. And thankfully, David recognized that our God is a big enough God to handle our full range of emotion, joy and pain. Gratitude and disappointment. And sometimes fear and questions of, are you even there? Do you see what I'm going through? But we don't have to look at any of the other Psalms to see that. We can actually find that here in Psalm 23. Yes, the Lord God is my shepherd. This is a personal thing. I have seen him care for me. And yes, I know that he will take care of my needs. But sometimes him taking care of my needs means him making me lie down in the green pastures. I don't want to lie down. I want to keep running. I want to keep being in control. But no, he makes me stop. He makes me rest. He makes me cease drinking from the the polluted, muddy cesspools that I keep running to. And then he leads me to the quiet waters and say, drink here. This is what you really need. And there are times, David recognized, in my life where I will stumble and fall flat on my face. And my shepherd rather than turning his back in disgust upon me, will run to me and help restore my soul. Help me get back on my feet with love and gentleness. And yeah, he's going to lead me along some paths out of my well-trodden areas where I have already tried to gather and glean as much nourishment as I possibly could. He's going to force me to walk some places that are sometimes broken paths into some different pastures. And it's going to lead through some dark valleys. And there are going to be times when the shadows are encroaching and I'm terrified and I'm going to want to rush through them as quickly as possible. And I have a choice. Do I run ahead to try to get out of it? Do I run back from where I've come to the the comfort of what I've known, kind of like the Israelites in the wilderness, right? Going, man, why did you bring us out from Egypt to die in the desert? Back there, we had pots of meat. Back there, they were enslaved. Or, in the midst of those dark valleys, do I trust my shepherd enough to rest and allow him to set the pace? 
and allow him to walk me step by step through that. Because it's sometimes in those darkest valleys that our shepherd meets us. I remember, for instance, when I was walking through that passage between churches, an eight-month period. Yes, I had work I was doing. I was teaching over at Vanguard. But my ministry, my identity as a pastor was kind of stripped away for a season. And I remember talking in one of my journals, I, I remember writing, gosh, God, you must have an amazing pasture that you were leading us towards if you were going to take us out of this last one and bring us through this discomfort. You must have something amazing in store. And I remember in the midst of that, God checked me. And in my journal, I wrote down, God, I feel like you're telling me right now, what if this dark valley is all there is and the whole point of this valley is not to bring me to a greener, nicer pasture, but rather just to cause me to draw closer to you, my shepherd? Would that be enough? Would it be enough as we walk through the pain of whatever we may be walking through for our shepherd to say, you're with me and I am with you. So let's just do this together. And there is no greener pasture on the other side. Is that enough? That's a question I think we need to ask ourselves. And I'll tell you, I'm grateful he brought us here. This is a really green, nourishing pasture. But sometimes when we get to those green pastures, it can be very, it can be very easy to take our eyes off the shepherd, but it's in the midst of the dark valleys that our eyes are most focused. And I think David recognized that as well. And then we get to verse 5. This is the passage, the verse that we're going to look at today. And he begins by declaring, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Let's just look at the last part of that first. In the presence of my enemies. Following God does not mean that we will never have people who are pitting themselves against us, that we will never have people that would like to see us fall and stumble or even people who would like to see us straight up snuffed out. We were given a very vivid example of that over the weekend with what happened in France. And the men and women um, whose lives were taken by people with a, a different ideology who have pitted themselves against a way of life and have sought to strike terror into the heart of people simply Because they think differently. And when we think of enemies, I wonder if that's what we automatically go towards. Those nameless, faceless people or entities that pit themselves against us and and rejoice in our failures or in, in in our sorrow. Or maybe some of those enemies that we think of are a lot closer to home. Maybe it's coworkers. Maybe it's a competing group of people that we are either in business or in school, you know, sports or whatever. You know, maybe it's a neighbor or maybe it's even somebody in our own home. Maybe a spouse has started to look a little bit more like an enemy. You feel like you're constantly battling against that person and that you are not on the same page. And so you have to try to vie for your perspective and they're trying to vie for theirs. And all of a sudden you're just like two mules that have put your feet into the ground and refusing to move towards one another. 
But David declares that you prepare for me a table in the presence of my enemies. Just let's back up just a little bit and ask, well, from a shepherd's perspective, what does that mean? How does a shepherd prepare a table for his sheep? Again, a shepherd makes sure that his sheep are being nourished. And part of that is sometimes when he looks around and sees that the sheep have pretty much cropped the grass, they're not getting the nourishment they need from a certain pasture that he's had them in. Before they start pawing up the roots and eating those, which ends up destroying a pasture, he will lead his sheep along broken pathways, sometimes that lead through dark valleys, to new pastures. And when he gets there, or perhaps even before he leads them into it, he has gone ahead and prepared that place. He recognizes if there's any poisonous bushes there, and he pulls them up and removes them. And if there's any steep precipices or places where the sheep could easily fall in, he makes sure that he leads them away from those and protects them from going near them. And he also recognizes that there are predators prowling around, looking to come in and harry the sheep and and scatter the flock and then pick off the most vulnerable, the young, the weak, the sickly, the isolated. And if a sheep enters into a new pasture land and there are shadows and there are trees and there are places where those predators can lurk and if a sheep thinks that it's up to him or her to protect itself, not that they really have many ways to do so, they don't have any claws, no sharp teeth and they're not really fast. They can't really run away from the predators. So the only thing they can do is be on high alert. And so as the sheep goes down to graze in this pasture that the shepherd has provided for it, hears a noise and Did you hear that? What was that? I don't know, dude. Relax. Oh, okay. Oh, what was that? And then all of a sudden, some of the other sheep start going, what's going on? What did you hear? Oh, I think there's something over there in the woods. What? And if the sheep think it's up to them to protect themselves, you better believe that regardless of how fruitful the fodder is under their feet, how much grass there is to feed off of, if they are anxious about the predators that are lurking in the woods, they're not going to be able to be nourished. And it doesn't matter how lush the field is. It doesn't matter how long the shepherd has prepared that place or whether it's the right pasture for them to be. But this one thing David recognizes. The shepherd prepares the table for them in the presence of their enemies. And the reason that they are able to partake of that nourishment is because the shepherd is there. He's got his rod and his staff. The rod used to be able to protect, not only to discipline the sheep when they're starting to bump against one another, but used to defend them against the wild animals that would seek to steal, kill, and destroy them that would feed off of them. And because the shepherd is on duty, they can go off duty. Because the shepherd is vigilantly watching, because he is there, they can rest in his provision. They can find their nourishment. And they can stop trying to figure it out. So long as they're resting with their shepherd. The moment that they start going, I don't know, 
then my shepherd can really protect me. That's when they start kind of trying to carry the anxiousness of their safety upon their own shoulders. And they are completely and utterly incapable of doing so. But that doesn't stop them always. And it's when the sheep get spooked and they scatter that they are at their most vulnerable. Now, again, we might, when we think and hear the word enemy, think of a different political party or of a, um, a different ideology, nameless, faces, faceless people that we hear about on the news, or we might think about people that we know in our own life, individuals. But Scripture is very clear that our enemy that we are at war with is not flesh and blood. It is not our neighbors, not our spouses, not, you know, co-workers, not even a different ideology. That is not... Our true enemy. Our true enemy is spiritual. Has a name. Satan. And this enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone whom he may devour. He seeks to steal our joy. Kill our hope. Destroy our faith and ultimately destroy our walk. He would love nothing more than to scatter a flock. And he has pitted himself from the beginning of time against God and his people. We see this as early on as the third chapter in Genesis. After Satan had attempted to overthrow, although Satan was created by God to be an angel of worship, he rebelled against God thinking higher of himself, thinking I could probably do a better job than God. And he tried to depose God and lost. And so then he turned to make war upon God's creation. And he comes slithering in the form of a serpent in Genesis chapter 3 to try to thwart God's purposes when he created Adam and Eve, man and woman, to be his representatives, to care for his creation. He comes slithering in and he says this. Did God really say not to touch that fruit? Listen, you're not going to die. God is holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be like them. And he began to, cast, to sow seeds of doubt into the hearts of man and woman that God was good and that God was a trustworthy shepherd. And when they began to listen to those ideas and doubt began to take root in their lives, they suddenly started looking at the, the forbidden fruit and going, man, that does look pretty desirable for giving me the things that I feel like God has withheld from me. And they ate and sin entered the world. And suddenly we found ourselves enslaved to sin, separated from God. And every single generation of children that has come from Adam and Eve have carried within themselves that root of sin and those shackles, including our generation. And then God said, I'm not willing to allow my creation, my representatives, my children created in my image. I'm not willing to allow them to remain enslaved to their sin or to remain estranged from me. So I will do what they cannot do. I am going to take upon myself the penalty of their sins and redeem them, breaking those chains. And so he sent Jesus Christ, God, in human flesh to come and take care of that. But Satan was not willing to go down without a fight. And so he began by trying to thwart Jesus before he ever took his first breath. 
he stirred up the insecurity of King Herod. There would be a rival king to me, and Herod began to systematically kill children that were in an age range of what he believed was when the Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer, was born. But he failed. And Jesus wasn't killed. And so Satan changed his tactic. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try to flip Jesus' allegiance. God may have sent him to redeem mankind. I'm going to see if I can get him to work on my side. So the moment that God, you know, when Jesus is baptized and God goes, you are my son whom I love with you, I'm well pleased. And he anoints him with the Holy Spirit. Suddenly Jesus goes into the wilderness for a time of fasting. And that's when the enemy shows up. And he begins to tempt him, trying to turn him. First, he starts by, again, trying to cast doubt into Jesus' heart about who he really is. If you really are the Son of God, then prove it. Turn these stones into bread. Jesus goes, Scripture says that man does not live on bread alone. You know, stop it. Okay. Takes him up to the top of the temple. Look down there, Jesus. If you really are the Son of God, then jump. Because scripture says that the angels won't even let you strike a heel against a stone. Twist scripture to try to tempt Jesus. And Jesus goes, yeah, but scripture also says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. One last one. If he can't get him to question what God has said over him, at least maybe he can get him to try to go a different route. Tell you what, you want to be the king of all of this? You want to redeem all of them? Then fine. If you will bow down and worship me, then I will give you all of these nations. You can be king of them. You just have to swear allegiance to me. One more time, Jesus says, Scripture says you worship God alone and no other, so get away from me, Satan. And he failed to turn Jesus, but he wasn't done fighting yet. If he couldn't get him to turn, he would destroy him. And so he started to rile up the Israelites started to get them to go, man, this prophet Jesus, this guy who's going around teaching, he's doing some amazing things, but if he keeps talking this way, then Rome, who has kind of got their thumb on us, is going to not only crack down on him as a rebel, but he's going to crack down on us. They're going to take away the temple. They're going to take away the little freedom that we have, even though we're enslaved. We're going to take away the little kernel of freedom that we have, so we need to shut him up. It's better if we silence him and continue to, to hold on to this modicum of freedom that we have under the, thr- uh, the thumb of Rome. And so they handed Jesus over to the Roman authorities and said, crucify him. We don't swear allegiance to this false king. We swear allegiance to Caesar, to Rome. We choose that over this pretender. And Satan thought he had won on the day that Jesus hung on a cross. When the skies grew dark and the father turned his back on his son because of the sin that was hung upon him, our sin that he carried to the cross for us. But what Satan thought was his greatest victory turned out to be actually his greatest defeat because what Jesus did on the cross was take all of our sin upon himself. And in so doing, he broke the chains that from Adam and Eve on had held us in bondage and had given Satan control over us. And so Satan lost on a day when he thought he had won. However, 
Our enemy was not finished and he was not giving up. If he couldn't destroy Jesus and his time he recognized was short, then he's not going to go down without a fight. And so he then turned, as Revelation 12 states, to make war upon all the men and women who call Jesus Christ Lord. In other words, he turned and began to lash out at every single man, woman, and child who says, I'm a Christ follower. When we say yes to Jesus, target is painted on our chests. And our enemy, the enemy of God, comes after us. So whether we recognize this or not, we are at war. But our enemy is not flesh and blood, it is spiritual. And it is the oldest enemy that we could ever have. And he's wily. And we could, like those sheep, be terrified. Going, how am I going to deal with this? What do I have to do? I need to run and hide. I need to... And the reminder for us is that we are sheep. We don't have the ability to defeat Satan on our own strength. True, we need to stand against him. We need to resist his attacks. We can't close our minds to the fact that we have an enemy and that we are at war. But it is not our job, nor is it within our ability, to overcome Satan and defeat him. It is our shepherd's job. And we know from Revelation that that will happen. That day is coming and his time is short. And in the meantime, we simply must remain vigilantly in the presence of our shepherd. We are at our strongest, we are at our safest when we are in the shadow of our shepherd, surrounded by other sons and daughters of God with our eyes fixed on him rather than on all of the shadows around us. Because when we focus on the shadows, then like Peter trying to walk on water, we're going to sink into a flood of being overwhelmed. But when we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, then although there are enemies prowling around. And although there are people who celebrate when we stumble, they do not get to de define our value or determine the trajectory of our eternal lives. So he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies and most specifically in the presence of our enemy. And when we know that our shepherd is with us, we can, we can take nourishment and find rest in the midst of the questions. But that's not all the shepherd does. David then goes on to say, he anoints my head with oil. You ever try to go to sleep at night? You turn out the light and then all of a sudden you hear it. Oh, maybe it's gone. Oh. Right? And then you start doing this kind of thing. You may hit your spouse. You're like, what are you doing? And it goes away for a second. Or you turn on the light and there's nothing there. You turn off the light and you're just like, mm. it's like worse than nails on a chalkboard. Can't go to sleep. Multiply that by like 10,000. And that's what sheep deal with day in and day out. Because sheep are kind of stinky creatures. And when there's a lot of them, Particularly in the wet seasons, there are a lot of bugs that swarm around sheep. It is constant. And they love to frequent the ears, the eyes, and the nose. Because those are great places to lay eggs. 
which is even worse. And so they're constantly crawling into these crevices and the sheep trying to get away from them are just shaking their heads. And it doesn't matter how lush the grass is under their feet. When they are surrounded by the pests of the world, they can't rest. And so sheep will shake their heads. Sometimes they'll even bang their heads against trees trying to dislodge the itchiness and all that kind of stuff. They will run around trying to get away from these swarms. They will try to go into thickets of brambles to try to get away from them. And they are tormented. And a good shepherd takes pains to make sure that the sheep are cared for even in the midst of those flying pests. A good shepherd will use oil It is a natural, especially when they mix it with some other things, it becomes a natural uh, insect repellent. And they will pour it over the sheep's head. Sometimes they'll dip the entire sheep into the repellent, into the oil, and then rub it into their um, wool. They will take, be very intentional about making sure that they put the oil in their ears, in their nose, around their eyes, because those are the places that the insects love to go. The oil does not get rid of the pests. The bugs are still there. But what it does do is it gives those sheep respite from having to try to figure out how to get away from them on their own. It gives them an opportunity to rest and actually get some nourishment. And in the same way, we are surrounded. We may have big enemies, but we also have little enemies that can easily distract us, that can dominate our thoughts. For some of us, one of our enemies is a lack of rest. And even when we find rest, even when we take a day off, we find that our brain's still going a million miles a minute because there's all these concerns that are flying around through our brain. So we cannot find rest because we are constantly going, okay, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? How am I going to take care of this? How am I, I cannot believe that I said it that way. That was such a stupid thing, you know, and it's just constantly. And our shepherd knows that we, just like a sheep, need to be protected from the pests. But if you look up oil, in scripture, if you look at the passages that talks about oil, particularly about being anointed with oil, what we find is that that oil is often tied to this concept of the Holy Spirit, God's spirit being poured out on his people. We see that often prophets and kings were anointed with oil. David himself, who wrote this psalm, was anointed with oil when God said, that is my next king. Although he's just a kid, although he's been in the field tending the sheep, he's my king. And so the prophet Samuel was dispatched to pour oil over David's head. And that oil signified the pouring of the Holy Spirit over David to both seal him and also declare him to be the next king of Israel. Even though it would be another 15 years before he assumed the throne. Jesus himself was anointed not with oil, but literally with the Holy Spirit. Again, on that day of his baptism, when the Father said, this is my Son whom I love, the the heavens opened up and the Spirit descended like a dove and landed on Jesus, filling him up and empowering him and propelling him into the next three years of very fruitful ministry before he was finally crucified and did what he ultimately came to do. 
And it was the Holy Spirit landing upon him and filling him up that really was the engine for that. Because Jesus, God in human flesh, had emptied himself of his godhood so that he could truly be human, so that he could truly understand what we go through. And so when we call Jesus the Christ, or in Hebrew, the Messiah, those are titles, those aren't last names. And in the midst of that, God simply says, I am with you. Regardless of how alone you feel, you're not alone. And so I'm going to fill you up. And it's not simply for your own good, but I will fill you up so much that it will literally begin pouring out of you. And it will pour on to those around you. And the spirit that I give you will begin to shine like light into the darkness, will begin to flow like water into the cracked and barren deserts that you find yourself walking through. And you will become a conduit of life and hope in the darkness. You will be my ambassadors of hope and reconciliation to a world that is broken and terrified. And to people who are estranged from the one that created them. And so this morning, um, what we are going to do is, is symbolic of what Jesus has done for us. We are going to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us in dying on the cross to take upon himself the penalty that we deserved. In Scripture, there's two cups often talked about, the cup of God's wrath and the cup of God's spirit and intimacy. Jesus came to drink to its dregs the cup of God's wrath. In fact, on the night that he was arrested, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane preparing for that and praying with God, he said, God, if there's any way we can do this differently, if, the, if there's any way this cup of your wrath can pass from me, let's do it that way, please. However, I love, I love that picture of Jesus' humanity because it reminds me that when I'm praying to him, he understands how I feel. Because he was human, he had emptied himself of his godhood. And so we have a high priest, we have a shepherd who can identify with us. But he said, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, let's do it that way. But, not my will, but yours be done. If this is your plan, then we're going to do this. And I will drink this cup of your wrath, which your children have filled up to its dregs. And so he did that. And all that's left for us then is not the cup of God's wrath, although our sins have earned that for us. What is left for us is the cup of intimacy, the cup of peace. Jesus was separated from God so that we could be reunited. Jesus was broken for us so that we could be mended. And so Jesus took the bread and he said, this bread this represents my body that I'm going to give for you. And when you eat of it, do it in remembrance of the sacrifice I'm making in this cup. 
This cup symbolizes my blood that is going to be poured out for you, poured into you, poured over you to cleanse you of your sin. Because our God is a holy God and we are a sinful people. And just as darkness cannot coexist with light, when darkness comes into contact with light, the light destroys the darkness simply because they cannot coexist. And in the same way, our sin cannot coexist with the holy God. When we would come into contact with him, with our sinfulness, we would be utterly destroyed. And yet our God loves us so much that he's not willing to allow that to be the reality of our relationship with him. He's not willing to allow us to remain estranged from him. So he said, Jesus, you will take my wrath. You will take their sin so that they can be reunited with me. Sinners will be declared saints. Prodigals will be welcomed home because of the sacrifice. So take this in remembrance of my sacrifice, in the remembrance of who you are. You are no longer defined by your mistakes. You are defined by the greatest act of love that has ever taken place in history. And it was for you. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to invite you to come forward or go to the back. We're going to take the communion elements. And then hold on to them because we're a family. We are a flock following our shepherd. So we're going to take it together. So if I could have Lee, Mary, would you guys come up here? Byron and Diane, are you guys here? Maybe. Byron and, all right, Byron is Byron. Go back there. Who else have I got? Where are my elders? Gary, Sherry, would you guys come up here?